0: All right, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Lanny. I'm filling in for Jared, our pastor this morning, who is currently uh, probably posted in a bathroom in Ecuador. He's pretty sick, so you guys be in prayer for him. He's got kind of a stomach thing that you often get when you go to a third world country, but he's been in Ecuador teaching local ministers, kind of equipping them to better serve their local congregation. So we're happy that he's able to do that. He's gone through a ministry called Reaching and Teaching that we're going to be supporting as a church both financially and by hopefully sending people. So that's something that you need to be thinking about, whether you would like to be a part of that by going, by going to serve. So we'll need people that can go to teach, but also we're thinking about other things that we can do to serve the local people there. So be in prayer about that. If God has put that on your heart, be putting some money aside because it it does cost money to go. Uh, the church can help with that sum, but be saving and uh, just talk to us about it. We'd love to to find people who are, who are willing to go and travel there. So Jared is in Ecuador, and really, as the pastor of our church, he's leading. He's leading by example. He's stepping out in front of us. He's not sitting back here and saying somebody else can go do that. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to go to a third world country and get a stomach bug, you know, I just want to sit in my recliner and watch baseball. But he's, he's leading, and he's being a good example of what a leader does, of what leadership looks like in the church. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about leadership within the church. What does good leadership look like? What does bad leadership look like? And then what does it look like to follow as believers? Because we're all called to follow leaders as well. So I do understand for some of you, The temptation might be to just kind of want to check out this morning on this sermon because you're saying to yourself, I'm not an elder, I'm not a leader in the church. I'm just going to play some Candy Crush on my phone or take a nap. I understand that temptation. I've been tempted to do that before. Uh, But before you do that, let me just say that some of you will be called to lead in this church, maybe another church, Uh, and so leadership might be in your future As Christians, we are called to lead. Many of you are already leading. You're leading in your families. You're leading in your workplaces. You're leading at school. You're leading amongst your friends. And so uh, as Christians, we are called to lead in this world. We're also called to submit. We're all called to submit to the Lord of the universe. We're called to submit our lives to Christ. And so submission is a part of the Christian life. And so we're going to look at this morning how we can lead better in our lives, and how we can follow. So before we do that, I just kind of want to review where we've been. We've been in this book of 1 Peter for the last few months. Now, 1 Peter is a letter. It's an epistle that was written by the Apostle Peter to early Christians. And so he's writing to these early Christians who are facing some hard times. Hard times are coming their way. Uh, The early Christians were... Beaten for their faith they lost their homes for their faith their businesses many of them were ultimately killed Peter was ultimately killed for his faith and so they faced they were going to be facing some difficult times and what Peter is doing He's encouraging them. He's encouraging them to have faith in the midst of suffering He's warning the church that these things are coming, but you need to bind up your faith because you're going to need it sometimes for us sitting in here this morning in Texarkana, Texas, in this nice, comfy building, it's hard for us to relate to those first century Christians. We have to be honest about that. That can be tough for us because we still live in a very secure place for Christianity. It is accepted to be a Christian in northeast Texas. It's encouraged. And so being a Christian for us, it can sometimes be hard for us to relate to these early Christians, It can be hard for us to relate to our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are are facing death for their faith right now. I was recently listening to a sermon by John Piper, and he was speaking about how the American church is kind of slowly awakening from this period of what he calls dominance and prosperity. So what he was saying is that for the past 300 plus years, for pretty much all of American history, it's been considered a good thing a normal thing to be a Christian, especially in the South, especially in Northeast Texas. And Piper points out that Christianity has often been viewed as a pathway to success in our culture, a pathway to worldly success, success in your career, success in your family. And I just want to quote a little bit from his sermon here because I thought it was really good stuff. And this is what he says about Christianity in America. He says, we the American church, have been dominant and been prosperous. And therefore, we have come to feel at home in this world. We have developed a deeply ingrained assumption that things should go well for us, that being a good Christian and being well thought of must go together, and that poverty and sickness and suffering and death is the worst thing that can happen in a land of Christian wealth and health and ease and upbeat success-oriented vitality. And so we have developed a form of Christianity to support this ingrained expectation of acceptance and comfort. This form of Christianity begins by focusing on our felt needs, not our eternal ones that we may not even be aware of, and it makes its appeal on the basis that Christianity will make life a lot better for us in this world. It has not been a call to suffer as an alien, but a call to prosper as a respected citizen. So when I heard those words, when I heard him speaking those words, I thought they were both very true and beautiful, but also extremely convicting to me, to be honest with you, because I would not come up here and speak about some health and wealth theology. I wouldn't verbalize that, but there are times in my life when my mind thinks that way, when I think that because I'm a Christian, things should ultimately go good for me, that I shouldn't get sick, that my wife shouldn't be in the hospital, that... Uh, I should do well at my job, that everything should go good for me. I I believe that sometimes. That's a false belief. And I'm sure some of you can relate to that in here this morning. Now, Piper does point out that there is some truth to this, that the Christian life might bring prosperity, because if you are a Christian, you should be working hard. You should strive for excellence in your work. And so oftentimes you will do well at your job. Your marriage should go better for you if you're living by Christian ideals. Your kids should do better. And so there is some truth to that. But what he's saying is we've taken this small truth and we've made it the big truth. We've made it the major thing, the central doctrine of the church. And so what we have is we've elevated health and wealth above what we're really called to do as believers. And we've made the American dream. The American dream has supplanted the Great Commission. And we've suffered from this. We've suffered as a church in this nation from this type of thinking, from this ingrained comfort. And now we can hardly grasp what it was like for those New Testament Christians. It's hard for us to grasp what it's like to be a Christian in the Middle East facing death for your faith. But here's the thing. Scripture tells us that Christ has called us to more than comfort. He's called us beyond the American dream. He's called for us to take up our cross. And that involves radical love, and at times it involves radical sacrifice. And like it or not, this time of comfort for the Christians in America is rapidly ending. Our culture is transforming faster than it ever has. And there's going to be a time soon when being a Christian and being comfortable in our nation is no longer something that coexists. It's already happened for some people. There are people who have lost their businesses, people who are facing fines, in the near future, people might be thrown in prison. These are things we can see in our lifetime in this nation. So what Peter is saying to these early Christians, he's saying fiery trials are coming. I'm telling you, fiery trials are coming in your life. We have to hold fast. We have to shore up our faith. And we're not going to be able to withstand these things on our own power. Last week in chapter 4 and verse 19, Peter tells us this. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their Creator while doing good. In other words, we have to have faith in the Creator in the midst of our suffering. Faith in the grace that we have received through Christ is what carries us through, and through that faith comes hope. We're not hoping in something that's going to happen. We're hoping in a finished work. We're hoping in the finished work of Christ. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death and our hope is secure. So Peter, throughout this letter, we see that he's a great encourager. He's a motivator. Another great encourager was a guy named Winston Churchill. Now, Churchill was no apostle. He drank way too much scotch for that, said too many bad words, but he was a great motivator. And during World War II in 1941, Hitler was at the back door uh, the Nazis were getting very close to invading England. There was a big air battle going on, and he makes a speech at a school in England, a, a boys' school, I think it was, at kind of a graduation ceremony. Many of you have probably heard the quote, but in that speech, he says this: "He says, never give in, never give in, never, 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 and nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor." in good sense. Peter is telling these followers, don't ever give up living for God. Go until your last breath. He's leading through motivation, through encouragement. And as he's doing this, here in chapter 5, Peter shifts his focus to the leaders of the church. So he's shifting to the leadership. And in verse 1, he begins to address the elders. So why do we see this shift to leadership? And I think that we can say leadership matters to God. Throughout the Bible, we see God raising up leaders to serve his people. We see this throughout history, that he raises up leaders to serve his people, to serve his purposes, for his glory. We see that in all aspects in our lives. We see it in uh, business. Uh, We see it in sports. We talked about football leadership this morning. And Brooke would tell you that I'm way too big of a sports fan. I kind of have a little problem with it. And so I love sports. I love playing sports as a kid. I was never a great athlete, but I love being on a team. I love competition, and now I I do a lot more watching than playing. But I enjoy sports. I love the, the team nature of it. And the one thing that we see is that a team needs leadership. A team needs someone that can develop a game plan, someone that can enforce discipline, Someone that can get all the players on the same page, fighting for the same goals. And good leadership, oftentimes in sports, trumps talent. We see that. A good example are my beloved Baylor Bears. You know, I went to Baylor. I have to talk about Baylor in every sermon, just about. But I went to Baylor, and, and in 2000, I graduated in 2001. So while I was there, we were terrible. I don't think we ever won more than two games. Keeping it within three touchdowns was a good. That was a good Saturday on the football field. Uh, so we would just get killed, get blown out. But all of that changed when this Texan, this guy named Art Bryles, rode into town. And it's almost like he rode in on a horse, and he had spurs on and six shooters on his side. But he's just this, this great Texan that comes in with, with, with leadership. He brought discipline to the team. He brought positive energy. And within the next year, you've got the same players on the field but a different product. They're much more competitive. Uh, Within a few years, they're winning championships. Probably should have been in the playoff this year, but I'm I'm not too bitter about that. But leadership matters in sports. It matters in business. And what Peter is saying here is that it's important in the church. So Peter knows that the church is going to be facing hard times. It's going to be under stress. And in these times, leadership is more important than ever. So here he wants to shore up these leaders. He wants to make sure they know what good leadership looks like, and what it doesn't look like. So let's take a look at the scripture for this morning. In verse 1, Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's about to exhort the elders, but before we get into the exhortations, I just want to take a look at what he's showing us here in verse 1. So we see that he's addressing elders. Now some of you might be asking, What is an elder? What's Peter talking about here? Maybe you grew up in a church where there were no elders. Maybe they were called something else. Um, But throughout the New Testament, we really see two church offices that are taught, and that's the office of elder and deacon. So what we see in the New Testament throughout the book of Acts, when the church is being formed and and throughout other uh, books in the New Testament, we see that elders are the overseers of the church. They're the spiritual leaders. They're the teachers. They're meant to shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. Scripture teaches that elders should be more than one, and that they should be men. So we believe in the plur- in, in plurality of elders. That means two or more. And uh, here at the church, Jared is an elder, and myself. So right now we have two elders. Uh, in the future. As we go forward, we'll probably have more, but right now there's two of us, so we believe there should be two or more. And then the other office that we see is the office of deacon. Now, we don't have people with the official deacon title as of now. We plan on that, but we do have a lot of people serving in deacon roles. The word deacon comes from a Greek word, diakonos, which means servants. So we are all called to be servants as Christians, but you can kind of think of deacons as the lead servants in the church so for example we might have a deacon over the music ministry so that would be the lead servant over the music ministry or a deacon of the children's ministry so the lead servant with the children's ministry so jared and i are kind of working on a position paper on this what's this going to look like for us as a church uh so we should be getting that out within the next few months so those are the two offices elder and deacon peter here is specifically addressing the elders as the spiritual leaders of the church And we see here in verse 1 that he's identifying with them. He's kind of bringing himself down to their level. And by doing that, he's showing great humility. You have to think about who Peter was. He was one of the 12 original apostles. Not only that, he was one of the three apostles who was in Jesus' inner circle who basically went everywhere with Christ. And so he, he spent... All of his time during Christ's earthly ministry, he was with him. He was with the resurrected Christ. And if you remember, Jesus himself personally called Peter the rock on which he would build his church. So Peter's a pretty important guy. So we have this exalted elder, exalted apostle, showing great humility here. There's no ego with Peter. There's no ego getting in the way. He desires for the church to do well, for God to be glorified. And he understands that he is simply a weak man and that his strength, his position is a gift from God. So the first important aspect to leadership that I think we need to see here that Peter is showing us is humility. Without humility, people are not going to follow. People are going to reject your instruction. Nobody wants to serve an arrogant egomaniac. Some of you might have worked for somebody like that. You kind of just want to do the opposite of what they tell you to do. Nobody wants to serve that. So what we see here in verse 1 is that Peter's also alluding to the sufferings of Christ. He's reminding them that the king of the universe humbled himself to come down into this world and suffer for our sake. And we've never seen any greater humility than that. Again, if Christ suffered, we should not be surprised when we suffer as well. Peter also reminds us that this present suffering will lead to glory. And throughout Scripture, we see that suffering is a pathway to glory. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 here, where where Peter begins to uh, exhort the elders. He says this to them. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Peter is showing us what good leadership looks like. He, be, he begins by encouraging them to shepherd the flock. The congregation isn't theirs. It's God's congregation. It's God's people. Christ is the head of the church. Elders are simply given the privilege and the responsibility of looking over it here on earth. So we see this analogy of shepherd Throughout scripture, we see God identifying as a shepherd of his people in the Old Testament. And Jesus kind of takes this upon himself in the New Testament as the chief shepherd, the good shepherd to God's flock. So we see this picture, picture of Jesus being the good shepherd, of taking care of his flock. And he wanted his leaders, the leaders that he appointed, he wanted them to feel the same way. So listen to what he told Peter when he restored him in John 21. John 21. So you have to remember, Peter denied Christ three times before his crucifixion. And then after Jesus was raised from the dead, he came to Peter and he said this. This is how he kind of brought him back into the fold, how he motivated Peter. This is what he said. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So this is amazing stuff. We see that Christ here is commanding Peter to follow him by laying down his life and tending to his sheep, by feeding his sheep, by comforting Comforting his sheep. And here in verse 2, we see Peter doing the same thing. He's given these elders the same command. Shepherds keep sheep from wandering, they go after them when they do wander astray. They protect them from dangers, they keep them from taking advantage of one another. They maintain unity within the flock. That's what a shepherd leader should look like. That's what an elder should look like. That's what a a leader in in any aspect of our lives should look like, should be a guider, a protector, a peacemaker, a humble servant, even to the point of laying down his own life. Peter points out that leaders should be doing this willingly. This has to be a labor of love. This isn't done out of compulsion. Uh, It's not some half-hearted attempt. It's not some task that we dread. We do this willingly willingly out of love. Now, as leaders in our church, as Christians leading in our homes, in our workplaces, at school, uh, how do we lead like this? Because here's the real truth. In the real world, there are people who can be very difficult to lead, very difficult to love. They're kind of what I call the much grace required type of folks. They complain about everything, Everything you do is stupid. Nothing you do is right. They can always do it better. They're prideful. They don't take any instruction. And they're just not fun to be around. They're miserable to be around. And I'm sure all of you have one or two people like this in your life. Uh, Maybe at work. Maybe in your family. Maybe at church. There are people like this in this world. But here's the thing. I think the key to loving them is what we've been talking about. It's humility. And the gospel is what keeps us humble. So we have to keep the truth of the gospel at the forefront of our minds. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to see who we are, who God is, and what God has done for us through Christ. We have to keep that at the forefront of our minds. In verse 2, Peter points out that elders are not to lead for personal gain. So the first thing we think about when we hear that, we think about all the TBN pastors, you know, that are sitting in like a gold, uh, uh, a gold throne, and they're telling you that if, if you send them $50, then you're going to get a new job. Are you going to get a new car, a new house? The health and wealth type of stuff, and yet they're, you know, flying a, a Learjet around, and they live in a $10 million home. That's kind of the first thing that pops into our minds, but it can be a lot more subtle than that. Okay? And Peter's not just talking about money here. The more subtle and common sin is to lead not for money, but for status. And this can sneak up on any of us because at the core of our sin nature is this thing called pride. And pride's very sneaky. We want to be loved, we want to be accepted. We want to look good in front of other people. We want to be well thought of. We want to leave a legacy. And it's easy for us to seek positions in leadership simply to feed our pride, simply to look good. So Peter's warning the elders against this type of motivation. A leader's going to have to make hard decisions. It's going to have to enforce discipline in the church. And if being liked and being well thought of is your main motivation you're not going to be willing to make those decisions. It's kind of like being a parent. Everybody knows that the quickest way to create a spoiled little monster brat is to give them everything they want because you want them to like you. To just say, I'm going to do the easy thing. I just want them to like me. I'm going to give them everything that they want. That's going to create a monster. And all of you have probably been around some monsters that have been created that way. We know that to be a good parent, we have to make tough decisions. We have to discipline our kids, and they might not like us in that moment. But in the end, it's going to be what's best for them, and it's going to be what's best for us as well. So in verse 3, Peter also points out that elders are not to domineer over their flock, but be examples. So elders should lead with conviction. Leaders should lead with conviction, but never with harshness they're not to beat people down that's some people's leadership style making people feel bad about themselves a negative type of leadership sometimes it's easier to lead that way but we are to correct people when necessary out of gentleness and respect the lives of leaders leaders should model what they desire for their followers they should be living examples of how they want their congregation to live so if jared says I want my congregation to go out into this world and spread the gospel. He says, I'm going to go to Ecuador and show them what that looks like. In verse 4, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's telling us that there will be a reward for the service in the end, in the next life. When we serve according to God's will, it will be re- rewarded. Peter's telling us that the chief shepherd Christ is coming back to judge and reward the world. He's referring to Christ as the chief shepherd. Peter is reminding the elders that they serve under Christ, that they have to be servants and not dictators. Peter points out that all those who have faithfully served him will be rewarded. Those who have placed their faith in him will spend eternity with him and share in his glory. We will share in in the inheritance that does not fade, and it is a gift, and it will bring unimaginable joy that we can't comprehend. In verse 5, Peter addresses those under the leadership of the elders when he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter's addressing those under the leadership of the elders in this verse, but he's also addressing the elders themselves. He's encouraging all of them to clothe themselves with humility. There's that word again, humility. He calls us to be humble. And clothing yourself is this image of putting that on every day when you wake up and go out into this world, putting on humility. I spoke about how humility is a very important characteristic for leaders, but it's also an important characteristic for followers as well. Humility is kind of the oil that keeps things going. It keeps relationships going. It binds believers together, and it's vital for a healthy church. So what's the opposite of humility? Peter addresses that here too. He says pride. And that pride just creates tension. It creates turmoil. It creates arguments. Peter says God is opposed to the proud. What does he mean by that? I think what he's getting at here is those whose lives are characterized by pride have no need for God. They might think they do. They might think they're serving God, but they have no need for God. These people are often very religious. Think of the Pharisees. Sometimes they are rigorously religious rule followers and anyone who can't live up to their rules is cast away. They might be the most, you know, regular churchgoers you've ever met in your life. And they're living by this, these rigid rules, but they're relying on themselves. They're relying on their own works. They're trying to earn their way to God. They're trying to put the God of the universe in their debt, saying, God owes me this because I serve him, because I do this. He owes me. This is ultimately going to lead to their eternal separation from the very one they claim to serve. As I've said, the opposite of pride is humility. And I've said the only way to obtain it and maintain it in this life, the only way to maintain humility is the gospel. The gospel says that you cannot earn your way to God. It says that you are not good enough and you never will be. It says that you are an enemy of God apart from Christ because by by nature you're a sinner and God hates sin. God is holy. He cannot accept your sin. The gospel says that God loved you so much he wanted to have a relationship with you for eternity and that the only way this could happen was for his son to come to this earth as a man to live a life that we could not live, to die a death that we were meant to die, So that we could be saved. There's no pride because there's nothing that you have done to deserve this. There's only grace. When we see that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, humility will be the result of our lives. Within the church, we can go out and serve Him. We can go out into this dark world and bring light. We can spread the gospel to our community and we can stretch out into the ends of the earth. So I implore you this morning to ask yourself, are you living by pride, or are you living by grace? Are you depending on yourself, or are you depending on Christ? There's no salvation apart from faith in Christ. We're saved by grace alone. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that we're able to gather here this morning to worship you, to serve a God who loves us, to serve a God who leads us well. I ask that as we go forth that we submit to your authority, that we submit to your grace, that we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we need you. Father, help us be bound together as a church. Give us humility to to serve with one another, to love one another, to care for one another, and just to go out into our communities and serve our communities, to show people Christ, to show them what you look like, to show them what your love looks like. Help us to do that, Lord, as we go forth this next week. In your name I pray, amen.